The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, my text verse this evening is 1 Timothy 4.16, in which the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, take, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul told Timothy to continue in doctrine. And he said the doctrine, actually. What doctrine could you imagine that he was talking about for Timothy to continue in? Well, that must be the doctrine that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. And Paul said, this will save you and it will save those that hear you. Well, that verse actually has, has a dual meaning, that right doctrine is necessary for the salvation of the soul, but it's also necessary to save us from false teachers that continually try to push their false doctrines on the church. Good discernment is necessary when we hear different types of preaching and we're, we're not going to be able to discern good doctrine unless we're willing to apply ourselves to the study of the Word of God to see who is telling the truth. Now, because the modern church has failed to do that, because there isn't really a whole lot of teaching of doctrine in churches today, because the preaching in the pulpit is very anemic, people have fallen prey to a lot of uh, seriously bad doctrine, and people are just terribly weak in the faith. And if there's anything that the church needs, it needs for pastors to go back to their studies and to look into the Word of God and be sure that what they're doing is preaching the whole counsel of God's Word. That's an imperative for us, so we don't become weak in our doctrine. Now, we need to get off of minor issues that many times churches want to deal with and return to the theological discourses that, that... consumed our Baptist forefathers in their teaching and made them actually theologians of the Word of God rather than wet nurses that were spending all their time trying to put diapers on baby Christians. So it's the job of the church to instruct in the Word not to be a social gathering for whining babies. And yet, I think uh, what most people are looking for today is for the church to be another form of their entertainment Give them something to do, something to entertain themselves. And church activities seem to be the thing that moves people the most rather than the power of the preaching of the pulpit and the Word of God. So people want churches to meet all the felt needs that they have. And if the pulpit's not able or the church is not able to supply them 40 different other things rather than just the preaching of the Word, then they want to go someplace where... They can get those types of things, and they don't really care about whether they're growing spiritually. But the Bible tells us that is to be the main concern. The pulpit is the main ministry of the church. And I've stated that many times. I want to keep that clear, that that is what we do here. We preach the Word of God. And the Bible provides the answer for why this this, this needs to be done. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, You're going to do this so that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. 
And Peter said, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And that's what our series is about. It's about the wisdom of proper discernment. It's to ensure that you are getting what you should get from the church. And, of course, that is the Word of God. We want to make sure that that is what you're learning when you come to church. We need to know the truth of the doctrines of the faith. Now, uh, you talk to most Christians, and they can articulate very few of the doctrines of the Word. And they don't really, if they find something that they don't understand, then they don't really supplement it with their own um, diligent study of God's Word to apply what they've learned. So we want to guard against that so that our church doesn't become the -the run-of-the-mill Christian church distinguished only by bands and baristas. And that seems to be what uh, judges churches today or what qualifies them to be good churches any longer. Now our subject in the past few weeks concerns particular doctrines that distinguish us as Baptists. Uh, First and foremost, the church is determined by its doctrine Uh, Many Baptist churches have decided what they would do is to drop the Baptist name from the church. And they do that because they don't want to have any doctrine that actually stands out and makes them any different from anybody else. So they drop the name Baptist because that's just too restrictive for them. And so they want to become the generic community church. Well, there isn't anything wrong with that word community. Uh, It's not actually a bad name, but I, I think that most churches want to lose those denominational ties because they don't really have anything different to say. They are pretty much like everybody else. None of them is any stronger than the others. So they don't want to be known by doctrinal stands. The difference is not their doctrine. The difference is how many different programs can we have? How many different things are going on in the church? And as I said a moment ago, that's the way that the church is judged. But if that's what you want, Berean's not the place for you. That's not where we're going to put the emphasis. We have one basic program that is teach the Word of God. Stand on that and let's not let anything else get in the way of that. Now, we don't want to overshadow what God says because when we get to the end of this whole thing and we get into eternity, what matters is not what I say, not what someone's opinion is. What matters is what did God say about it. That's what we've got to know. Thus saith the Lord, that's what makes the difference. So if we need a Sunday school class, then, then praise God, let's have a Sunday school class. We can use that. If we have the Pioneer Club on Sunday night, thank the Lord for people that are willing to work to do that. But one thing that we'll never do, we're never going to sacrifice what we do in the pulpit for a Sunday school or for Pioneer Club or for anything else. We want to stay strictly with the preached Word of God. Make that first and foremost of our ministry. Anything else amounts to a to a hill of beans. And you're not going to get to heaven, as said, by my opinion or anyone else's. It's by what God says. Now, let me give you a, some, a good reason why these other things, the Sunday school classes, pioneer clubs, activities that we do, that those things are not primary, they're not necessary, they are not imperatives for the church. Well, let me give you some good reasons why that they're not. The first one, and the main reason is, that the apostles told us to preach the gospel, not to organize activities. That's not our main work. Another reason is because the doctrine that we teach was so important that our Baptist forefathers died for it. They were willing to give their lives for these doctrines from 
the Word of God. And they were never going to compromise with anyone in order to satisfy anybody or to draw a crowd to hear them preach. And when I speak of our Baptist forefathers, I mean those groups that have a history that go all the way back to the time of Jesus and the apostles. I want to quote to you from Edward Hiscox and his book, The New Directory for Baptist Churches, and a very good book written uh, in the late 19th century. And he said this, he said, It is on all hands conceded that from the days of the apostles to the Reformation, there existed congregations and communities of Christians separate from the prevailing and dominant churches, claiming to be of a more primitive and therefore of a purer faith. As these dominant churches fell into alliance with the state, sought its patronage, became subservient to its spirit, proud, corrupt, and carnal, departing from the simplicity and spirituality of the gospel, these separate communities maintained their distinct existence, worshipped by themselves, and served God according to their understanding of the scriptures and the dictates of their consciences. They maintained the doctrines of the gospel nearly in their purity, and as they were at first delivered to the saints and were the true and faithful followers of Christ in the midst of prevailing spiritual darkness and decay, even in the apostolic age, not a few errors from the prevailing philosophies had crept into the profession of the Christian faith. But after that faith had been adopted by princes and became nationalized, its corruptions became more numerous and its perversions more glaring. All the more did these dissenting communities need to maintain their distinctive existence, not, for, not only for conscience' sake, but as a protest against the outrages perpetrated on the cause of Christ by others. Those are usually the heretics who differ from the majority and have conscience and courage enough to defend their position and, if need be, suffer for their faith. Thousands on thousands of those descending disciples were put to death by the most painful tortures for no other crime than a pure faith in their persecutors possessed, and because they would hold, profess, and defend that pure faith. Language is too weak to portray the diabolical and fiendish cruelties perpetrated upon the innocent, helpless, and for the most part unresisting people of God by those who are able to invoke the secular power to execute their fell designs. Now what Hiscox is talking about there when he talks about these dissenting groups that held on to this pure faith, he's actually talking about Baptist people. People who held on to the truth. And we just wonder how much more pain would these great men of God, these people of God in the past who were persecuted for their beliefs, how much more pain would they be in today if they could see what's going on with our churches and how we've departed from the Word of God and just don't care about these doctrines of the faith that they willingly died for. So Hiscox says, They maintained the doctrines of the gospel nearly in their purity, as they were first delivered to the saints, and were true and faithful followers of Christ in the midst of prevailing spiritual darkness and decay. And that's basically the point that I've been trying to make as we've gone through these first couple of areas of talking about discernment when we're talking about the Baptist acrostic. And that is, there is a true church of God. There is a pure church of God that has maintained its existence all the way since the time of Christ. It has not faded away. It's not gone from the earth. And Christ promised that it would always be here. So dissenting groups, like he describes back in the first centuries, are still dissenting groups today. 
that will not capitulate to the generic Christian ideas that are going on in the world today. So what I hope that, that you'll want to do as members of Berean Baptist Church is to keep these traditions and to keep Berean Baptist Church as being that kind of a church. Now here's a, an interesting bit of information for you. I wanted to put a, a banner out front of the church that would advertise the kind of church that we are. And I wanted to put a banner up that said something like historic Baptist church or authentic Baptist doctrine, something like that. I mean, just to tell people that we're different from the average church. Well, Brian and I had been talking about that. And uh, so he spoke to our media consultant and he came back with confusion about both of those ideas, about authentic Baptist doctrine, about historic Baptist church. And his, his comment on this, what does that mean? What, what do you mean by authentic? What do you mean by historic, that doesn't really resonate with people. They don't understand what you're talking about. And he said, doctrine, that's going to be an automatic turnoff. People are not going to uh, think about doctrine, historical. He says, what's that mean? So I finally settled on this, that somewhere out there, there have to be people that are fed up with the Latte Church. I mean, there has to be somebody out there that wants a more substantial Christianity. They want something that will actually make them think when they go to church, that will give them something to hold on to, something that really grounds them in the faith of the Word of God. And I know there aren't many of them, but I know there have to be some out there. There has to be somebody who realizes what those things mean. What does it mean to be historical? What does it mean to be authentic? And so I still think that we're going to put those up despite the, despite the uh, advice of a media consultant. What's wrong with people? I mean, I do think that there should be some people who want to listen to actual Bible messages where the Bible is used, where they can come in and they can hear a systematic approach to the explanation of the Scriptures and not to hear the latest pop psychology, psychology from Christian authors. So surely there's someone out there somewhere. There are people that need the truth. They want to hear the truth to grow and... We know that that's not going to attract the worldly crowd. But we're not really interested in attracting the worldly crowd. We want people that want to learn the Word of God. And we do want people to be saved, but we're not going to try to get people saved by feeding them a sugar-coated message and making the church what they would like to see. But in any case, uh, what we're doing here, we're going through some of the doctrines that distinguish us as Baptists. These are apostolic doctrines. They're characteristics of New Testament churches. And I don't see any reason to change the model for this. This is what's kept the church alive for these 2,000 years. So there isn't any need to change this and, and do away with the doctrines that we believe. Now, what we're talking about here, not, not all of them are salvation doctrines. Some of them are. And obviously the Baptist church is distinguished by the truth of salvation. But what we're speaking of here is really more about what makes the Baptist church different from some other groups that, that may preach a true soteriology. They do have a true doctrine of salvation, but they don't have a true ecclesiology. They, they don't know about the truth of the New Testament church. This is the thing that distinguishes us from them. So our method is to look at the Baptist acrostic, and this is not a systematic formula. I think it would be better maybe if it was, but it's not. But this is purely... Uh, a memorization tool that we use the name Baptist, the, the word Baptist, and to assign doctrines to each letter in the name Baptist. 
But the Baptist acrostic, that's not the way that we got our name. We weren't called Baptists at the first. As I mentioned before, you know, there wasn't a sign on that church at Jerusalem that said, Jerusalem Baptist Church. It didn't say that. But the same doctrines that we're teaching you here in this church are the doctrines that the apostles taught. We're still holding on there to 1 Timothy 4.16 to, to hold on to the doctrines of the faith. Now thus far we've made it through one letter and part of another. And the reason for that is because I'm real slow about doing this. I mean, I, uh, uh, I have this thing about throwing in a lot of extra stuff as we go through. But that's okay because you need this stuff too. We're not in a hurry to get anywhere, I don't think. And so I, I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, uh, the series has gone on. It was supposed to be. And originally the, the whole series of Living for Jesus was to be 12 lessons. We're 41 now. I don't know when we're going to get done. But sometime we will get done with it. Pray that you don't die before we do. Now the first letter in Baptist is the letter B. B stands for biblical authority. And we've been through that. I'm not going to explain that again. If you don't know what that means, ask Bob or Steve, and they can tell you what it means. And if they don't know what it means, they got a CD that can tell you what it means. So just ask, and they'll help you out one way or the other. The second letter is the one that we're discussing now. That's the letter A, and that stands for the autonomy of the local church. And I've given you some examples of how the Bible uh, teaches that churches are individual autonomous Entities that each church of Christ is a church body in its locality, that we are independent, that we are outside the control of anyone else. We operate under Christ's authority with congregational rule. So in other words, the church is self-contained. There isn't a pope that we answer to. There is no outside person we answer to. In fact, we resist any kind of outside interference, even if that interference comes from another Baptist church. We resist that because we're able to rule ourselves in the church. Now, I've given you some scriptures that show that membership of the first church has governed their own affairs. We looked at the example of the choice of another apostle that replaced Judas. We looked at the example of the deacons, first deacons that were chosen. We also looked at missionaries that were chosen from Acts chapter 13. And all of those were cases in which the church conducted its own affairs. There's not one example in all of the New Testament where there was an outside body that made a decision for the local churches. Now, the only exception that you would have to that is the apostles who governed all of the churches because they were writing Scripture at the time. But that office of apostleship did not continue. When they died, the office of apostleship was gone. And so churches are, are, are back to or reverted to governing their own affairs. So no one can claim <coughs> that they are successors to the apostles. Nobody can claim that they can do what apostles do. So we can't have a bishop. We don't have a council, a synod, or assembly of any kind that has authority over the local church. Well, I want to continue our thoughts on that subject tonight. And I, I want to finish this point. And I'd like to add to this that there are many practices of churches, many things that we do that we don't have scripture in verse 4, or chapter in verse 4. And despite how independent that we might be and how tenaciously that we hold on to that, we don't have the authority to change anything in the scripture. 
Because we're independent doesn't mean that we can do anything that we want to do. So Baptist churches can't decide, well, you know, we'd like to be a little bit more inclusive about things. And so we're going to give you options about salvation. Uh, we have, there, there's the Bible way, you can do it that way. There's the Berean way, you can do it that way. Or if you've got your own opinion of how you can get to heaven, we'll accept that too, because we want to be inclusive. Well, we don't have the authority to do that. We don't have the authority to make any kind of change in a Bible doctrine. But I do want to give you an example of how that a church can be wrong in a doctrine. And if we find out that we are, we should seek to change that doctrine. Now, I want to show you this example because it happened, it, it's happened in our church that we changed a practice, a doctrine that I think that we had wrong, and we changed to get it right. When I first became pastor of the church, it was the practice to baptize people that had professed Christ, but we didn't take them in as members of the church. If you wanted to be a member of the church, you, you had to make a separate application for that, and so becoming a member of the church was actually a two-step process. Now, first of all, that was wrong because there shouldn't be anybody baptized who doesn't want to become a member of the church. I mean, if you had the attitude, well, baptize me, but I'm not interested in being a part of a church, then you'd say, well, you haven't really understood what you're supposed to do as a Christian. You haven't really surrendered yourself as you should, so you're not really a candidate for baptism. That person is not showing any evidence of salvation. And secondly, it's wrong because our entrance into the church, according to the New Testament, is through our baptism. What you don't find any place in the Scriptures is a Christian that did not have church affiliation. Every convert was baptized and taken into the church. Now, a couple of years ago, when we were studying church doctrine, we looked at Acts chapter 19, and there we saw that uh, there were people that Paul spoke to that he had no doubts about the fact that they had been baptized. I mean, there are people in Scripture that became Christians, and they asked things like, may I be baptized? Remember, that was asked by the Ethiopian eunuch. Here is water. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He asked for baptism. What you don't see in the Scriptures is a Christian, and somebody asked them, have you been baptized? And this was the case with the Apostle Paul when he met some uh, people that had come from Ephesus, and they claimed to be believers, then he asked them about their baptism because he assumed they had been baptized. Now, the only thing that we find different about this than taking a person into a church through his baptism is that you have Paul baptizing people like the Philippian jailer and his family. And in that scripture of Acts chapter 16, you also have Lydia and her family from Philippi that uh, were baptized. And when Paul did that, he was taking these new converts that he baptized and forming the nucleus of a new church. So that's the only difference that we would have. Either we're bringing people in through baptism to start a new church, or we have a church that's already established, and when we baptize people, we bring them into the membership of that church. Now, if there's any other practice, it could only be because, if you were to find something else, it would only be because of uh, apostolic authority, that is, if you find it in the Scriptures, and that apostolic authority doesn't exist today. So churches have this authority that the people that we baptize automatically become members of the church. So we'd never want to baptize anybody to leave them unaffiliated. That wouldn't be a correct baptism uh, without church authority and without church membership. 
And let me tell you why that's so important. There are many baptisms that a church will do, and the church is not careful to be sure that the profession of faith is credible. There are times when churches don't preach repentance. That is a really big thing today, that repentance is not preached. They'll tell you to trust Christ, have faith in Christ, but nothing is said about repenting from sin. And so there are many baptisms that take place where people have not yet repented of their sins, and probably, I mean, unless there's something gone wrong here, or or has something gone wrong here, and people don't understand, they're not really saved. You don't want to baptize people like that. Uh, We're not going to baptize anyone who's not qualified at that point to become a member of the church. So we don't do things like we wouldn't baptize a, a couple that's living in adultery, living in fornication. We won't do that. We wouldn't baptize a person who would not give up the sin of drinking alcohol. Now, that person might fall into that sin later, uh, but we wouldn't take that person in initially if he hadn't repented and forsaken that sin, renounced that sin. But many churches aren't very much concerned about those things. They're concerned about the tally. How many people can we get into the church? How many converts? can we count? How many can we list that have said the prayer, so to speak, when they don't really have any evidence, not even an ounce of evidence that anything really happened to them? Did anything actually happen to that person when they claimed that they were converted? And that doesn't seem to be a major concern. Now, I want to be fair about this because I think that there are many ministries that are very, very much concerned about souls being saved. They may do this thing wrong, but they are, they are concerned about it. And I think that when this church was wrong, when we, we had it wrong that baptism wasn't coupled with church membership, I still believe that the church was interested that people would be saved. But when you've been taught this in churches, when you've been taught this, that noses mean numbers, the numbers start to win out. Now the tally becomes more important, and churches are measured by the numbers of people that they have. It's not measured by the growth of people in their spiritual lives, but it's measured by the growth of people that are sitting in the pew. Now, many years ago, there was an old friend of my dad's who wrote an article that was titled Nickels and Noses. If you get a chance, you might want to put that title into a web browser and you'll be able to read this whole article. But I've just uh, pulled out a small excerpt from it because I think it was really good and it illustrates this point. Let me just read a part of this article to you and I'll I'll stop to explain a couple of things here. He says, the first thing, now now, let me start off this. This was written maybe 50 years ago. Uh, The first thing most religious folks look for when they visit a church is the record board, which reveals how many nickels and noses that a church has. Now, I say this was written 50 years ago because you notice in our church there isn't a record board. Used to have one, but there's not a record board any longer. And uh, the record board is what showed how many people are in the church. How many came this week? How many came last week? Compare those two. The offering, how much money did you take in this week? How much last week? And so on. That's the record board. So this is what he's complaining about that people used to come into the churches and look for that record board. He said that's what reveals how many nickels and noses that a church has. If they fail to see a record board, they are frustrated and confused. They may assume that the church has gone hard shell or into apostasy. Now, I need to explain the term hard shell. That's not one that you 
here spoken of anymore. But a hard shell is somebody, well, actually would be a hyper-Calvinist. A hard shell would be somebody who does not believe that you have to do mission work. That if people are the elect of God, they're going to be saved whether, you, whether they ever hear the gospel or not because they are the elect of God. So a term was used to call them, uh, to explain what they were. These are usually what primitive Baptists were called, if you've ever heard that term. Uh, but they were called hard shells. So that's what he's talking about, that if you don't have the record board, then you must be a hard shell. You're not interested in numbers. You're not interested in how many people are being saved. So he said, either you think that the church has become hard shell or it's gone into apostasy. Much distressed, they will cry out, what is your attendance and offering in this church? As a pastor for over 30 years, I have many times been asked this question, and no doubt I will be asked it many more times if I live. Never has anyone ever asked me such questions as the following. Are your services spiritual? Is Christ real to your people? Are your members hearing the whole counsel of God? Are your people growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ? Is there a spirit of unity and love in your church? Evidently, these things are not important to modern-day religionists who judge religious success by worldly standards, nickels, and noses. I just wish one single time that a person would ask about something other than nickels and noses. When you have a revival in your church and people ask about your services, they will always ask, how many additions did you have? Never do they ask, did the evangelist preach the truth? Or was Christ glorified? Evangelists for revivals are usually chosen by the crowds they can draw and the number of additions they can get by nook or crook. Today, everything centers around nickels and noses. Pastors are hired and fired on this basis. Missionaries are supported or not supported by this criterion. Sunday school teachers are put in or out by this standard. Now, that said, this was written 50 years ago, but that very thing goes on in Baptist churches that I know of and you know of, that if you don't have a certain tally that you can get in, that you bring in, then forget your job you're out because your job is to get nickels and noses into the church. The philosophy of nickels and noses has drastically changed other churches or our churches for the worse. In the craze for nickels and noses, churches have replaced preachers and pastors with puppeteers and pranksters. The gospel of Christ has been superseded by gimmicks, gum, gadgets, and games. Psychology has taken the place of Holy Spirit conviction. The faith has been displaced for finance, fun, and foolishness. Church discipline has been relegated to the background in order to swell the size of the church with religious hypocrites who might give a little money to the church now and then. This syndrome has filled our churches with unconverted persons. We have far more churchianity than Christianity. The only change some church members made since joining the church was from wet to dry clothes following their baptism. Many church members are whitewashed, but they are not bloodwashed. Their names are upon the church roll, but they are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Many have been reformed, but they have not been reborn. Many have been confirmed, but they have not been converted to Christ. There are so many lost people in our churches until you cannot tell the difference between a church member and the unconverted. The reason is because there is no difference. Both are headed to hell as fast as time can carry them. Now, do you see, you see what he's saying here? And my point here 
is that we can't change the biblical methods. We can't be looking for the nickels and the noses, the money and the numbers all of the time. We, we want people to receive Christ, to know him for sure, and then to come into the church and grow in the faith. And as I said last week, if the numbers, or week before, if the numbers are small in our church because we maintain truth and because we won't capitulate to the ideas of the world, that's fine with me. Let's keep it that way if that's what it takes to be a pure preaching church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. So we, we can't alter baptism. We can't change any of this, the way that people are added to the church. But then let me say this, that on the other hand, the church has latitude as it does ministry. There are things that we don't have chapter and verse for, but we do have some latitude for things that we do. One of those things is uh, a ministry like a bus ministry. Uh, our church in Kentucky had one of the largest bus ministries, what was the largest in our city. We brought in hundreds of people. But there came a time when that ministry was not as effective as it once was. And we found that the ministry, uh, that, that bus ministry had changed the character of the church. Now, let me explain that. That it took so many people to operate the bus ministry. And there were so few people that would do it that people were overworked and they got scattered around to different parts of the building and they never had the opportunity to come together to, to worship as a family. And so the church was beginning to lose its character. With all these people scattered around the building and the limited number of people, the result was numbers were big. We were filling up the pews, but the retention of people was very small. So you kept running different people through all the time, and you weren't keeping people to stay and actually become effective and useful members of the church in, in the work of the ministry. And so the pulpit ministry gets shoved aside to let people do all these different kinds of things. Well, the church had the authority to change that ministry, and we did. And those of you that have been in Berean for a while, we know that we did the same thing here. A church is not bound by one type of ministry. And we do thank God that there are other churches that use bus ministries. It works for them. They have it, you know, they, they do well with it. That's fine. If they found their ministry niche in doing a bus ministry, great. Praise God for that. If they see souls saved because of that. But that doesn't mean, because a church like ours doesn't have a bus ministry, that does not mean that we're not interested in seeing souls saved. You can't connect those two things. And the reason that you can't is because we have this latitude in ministry to do ministry the way that we believe that God directs us to do it. All churches don't have to be the same and do exactly the same thing in their ministry. We also have authority over our music ministry. That we can decide what songs that we're going to sing. We can decide how the presentation of those songs will be made. We have to keep it, I think, within the boundaries of acceptable worship music, because quite frankly, not all music is worship music. I have another recommendation for you. Uh, this is um, about Dr. Peter Masters, who is the pastor of the church that Spurgeon pastored, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He has a great article on his website about church music. And you kind of have to stand back for this one if you're a fan of John MacArthur because he takes MacArthur to task for some of his very bad choices in music. And I agree with Peter Masters on this. You see, I really don't care. I mean, I, I really don't care to bring people in by using mu 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 uh, music ministry, by using a mu music ministry that is appealing to people. Like, it's a very bad choice to use rap music. In a Christian church. That's a very, very bad choice. 
We, we don't need to take the world's music and dress it up a little bit by putting Christian lyrics to it. That, that's, that's not what God would have us to do. We need to keep our music in the right, uh, right type of worship um, attitude. So these are all choices that we make. For instance, the screen here, that's a choice that we make. First time that I saw a screen in the church, I hated it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And the reason I didn't was because I loved the hymn book. The hymn book was sacred to me. I didn't want to put down the hymn book. But the hymn book is not sacred. The hymn book is a tool that we use. And we can decide to use the hymn book or not use the hymn book. And the point is, nobody can tell us what we ought to do in that regard because we have latitude in the way that we do that ministry. Now, I'm sure that there are churches in other places that would tell us, you are doing everything wrong. Everything that you're doing is wrong. And most of them that say we're doing it wrong, they are the bean and the body counters. They have other things in mind than pure doctrine, the pure doctrine of the Word of God. So they tell us what you really need is a marketing strategy. You've got to market your church. Someone told me not long ago, this is what you need to do. You need to market the church. You need to change your sermons. Not necessarily the, the, the content of the sermons, but change it to a marketing mode so that change the titles around. Make it, make it more interesting or something, I guess, by making uh, something else out of the titles and market the church. I'm not interested in marketing the church. We don't market the gospel of Christ to the world. We don't change what we do around here to be attractive to people that are unchurched. We let the Holy Spirit lead people in. That's not our job, to give them something that they like about coming to church. Now, that's a method that never worked, because all you ever do is fill up the church with unconverted people. Same thing as Milburn Cockrell said in that article, Nickels and Noses. So, an autonomous church then makes us responsible. I understand this. If we're autonomous and we have this latitude in ministry, then that makes us responsible for the way that we do it. We have to be sure that we're doing it right. Now, autonomy in the way that you do ministry shows up in a big way with missions. What you, what you couldn't do is you can't insist that an American missionary, he goes to a, a foreign country, and, and, and you can't insist that a national missionary do this either, that he builds an American-style church in that place where he's ministering. The customs are different, clothes are different, worship styles are different. The only constant that we really need to worry about is the gospel of Christ itself. That has to be the same no matter where we are, any place in the world. The gospel is the same gospel. The doctrines of the faith are the same doctrines of the faith. And everything else... We have some sort of latitude, and we ought not to insist that people do things exactly the way that we do them in every instance. Now, let me give you one more example here, and I'm going to wrap up autonomy for this evening. Let me talk for you just a minute about the, the invitation. I have seriously toyed with not doing an invitation at all. I don't think an invitation is necessary. An invitation doesn't determine whether people will be saved or won't be saved. That invitation is one of the tools that we can use, but it does not substitute for the Holy Spirit's work. So I thought about that we wouldn't do it. I'd just preach the sermon, I'd say a prayer, and we would be done. That would be the end of the service. Well, you'd say, that, that can't be right. There's got to be something wrong with that. But then I would say to you, then take me to that chapter and verse in the Bible that says... 
that the church has to give an invitation after a sermon is preached. And you won't find one because it's not in the Bible. So I could say to you that the biblical way of doing this is not to have an invitation. But because there's latitude in that, we can say that an invitation is not unbiblical. We don't say that it is biblical. I mean, we're saying it's not unbiblical whether you do or don't do it. It's what I'm trying to say. Because we have latitude in that. Now, if you invite people to Christ at the end of a sermon, and you do that through a song, that's okay. What we ought never to do is play on people's emotions in order to make that happen. Because when we start twisting people's arms with emotions, then we're, we're, in the, we're, we're into the Holy Spirit's business rather than doing what we're supposed to do in this. Now, is this to say, are we to say that a person can't be saved if an invitation isn't sung? Some preachers would say so. They'd say, you're not biblical if you don't do it. Um, they would say, if the pastor doesn't give an invitation at the end of the sermon, then you're not interested in seeing souls saved. Now, at the same time, I can say that there are many of you that could testify that you came to Christ during an invitation. A song was sung and you came to Christ. But what you can't say is the song is what caused you to come to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work. The song is a tool, and we don't want to use the tool in the wrong way. Now, in our church, before I became the pastor, we, we had a practice here that very, very seriously bothered me. And that is, the, at the end of the, of the sermon, everybody... Uh, we, we, we sing a song, and then, and then or we're singing the verses of a song, then the pastor would stop and say, everybody close your eyes, bow your, bow your heads. And then he'd start to do a little bit of pleading. And I'm standing here on the platform, and I'm watching this, and, and he would say, now, if you, if you know that you're lost, then you need, to, you need to be saved. You want to go to heaven, raise your hand. And I'm standing on the platform, and I don't have my eyes closed. I'm watching what's going on. So he's standing on the platform, says, raise your hand. Then he would say, Bless you, I see that hand. And I would say, what hand? Nobody even raised a hand. And the reason that he did this was because this was a way to get responses. That if people thought somebody's raising their hand, then somebody else would say, well, I'll raise my hand too. And then finally you might get a hand raised. Well, that's manipulation. I don't think that we ought to do that. And, and I, uh, that bothered me very, very seriously. Another thing that bothered me is when the invitation time came that uh, the Bible would be closed and then uh, the pastor would say, this is now the most important part of this sermon. I always had a problem with that because I can't see how you close the Bible and say, now we're at the important part. I mean, how can what you say be more important than what God says? So that bothered me. So we stopped all that stuff. I don't, I don't like that. I don't like any kind of of manipulation. But having said that, it's our decision whether we want to use an invitation. We can have one, not have one. That's our decision to make. It's not unbiblical if we do it. It's not unbiblical if we don't do it. I think the person who should be in charge of that is the pastor. He's the one that preached the sermon, so he decides how he wants to end that sermon. When we have a visiting preacher, I, I say to them, I always tell them this, when you're done preaching, I will handle the invitation. And that's because I get really, really nervous when manipulation starts. I don't like for that to happen. And so I say, well, I'll handle, handle that invitation. That's our prerogative. It's our church. So if we stopped invitations altogether, people would insist, oh, you're dead wrong about that. And again, I would say, give me a chapter and verse on it. And maybe you might not understand this, that nearly 100% of people that join this church have been through my office first. The Holy Spirit is capable of taking someone at the end of a sermon 
and moving him to my office rather than to the front of the church. It doesn't make any difference, the location. It's the Holy Spirit's work that does that. So I decided not to quit doing an invitation of some sort. Uh, that way, nobody can complain. Maybe I'll change my mind about it. I don't know. But these are the kinds of things that we do have latitude in. And that's because we are an autonomous body. As long as we're not going against something uh, in the Scriptures, not changing anything that's in the Scriptures, we're going to be okay. So we give an invitation, don't do the manipulation, we'll be fine. That's, that's okay if we do it that way. Now, one last thing, one last thought, I'll let you go. And that is, we need to understand that the church rules by the majority. Now, our decisions need to be right, but when those decisions are made, I mean, we need, need to make decisions according to the way that God wants us to, we make decisions by the majority. So if some decision is made that you don't like, and it's a preference of yours, and things don't turn out the way that you want them to turn out, you can't say, well, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I don't want to have any part of that because things didn't go my way. Well, you're not the ruling authority. The church as a whole is congregational. We are autonomous. We rule here as a majority. And so if you say, I'll take my ball and go home, then we might just say, well, we'll use our authority. Take your ball and go home. That's what we can do. Well, if you say, count me out, we might say, okay, we count you out. Think about this for a little bit. Think about it for a while. We're a body, a body of Christ that functions together here. We have to get along. Not everybody can have everything the way that they want it. We're all a body serving Christ in this place, and we do what's best for everybody as long as... And we want that to be what the Lord wants us to do. As long as we're not interfering with something that's going to hurt the cause of Christ, then the majority will rule. That's church autonomy. That's congregational rule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what we learned from it. Uh, Lord, we, we praise your name for the many truths that we draw out of it. And Lord, help us to make the right kinds of decisions, to be the right kind of church, to preach the word always. Uh, Lord, to be concerned about the salvation of souls and to go about the work that we do in the right way and depend upon the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, as we close tonight, we want to keep in mind things that are going on this week. Uh, we, we pray for Brother Gary as he's getting ready for his operation. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would guide the doctors and, and everything would go well there and recovery would go well. And we wish him, uh, pray for him to have a very speedy recovery from it, not much or any pain, and we just thank, uh, ask you, Lord, to help him. We pray that you bless Charlotte as she's looking for a place uh, to live. Open up something for her. Thank you for uh, many years she's been of service here in our church. Thankful for our visitors today, Natalie and Jeremy. Wonderful to see them, and Lord, we pray that you bless them as they move to Alaska and, and finding a church there and doing the work that they'll do for you in that place. Lord, just be with them. Bless their family. Bless the Brian Baptist Church, Lord. Help us to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.